All right, welcome everybody to the CNS Journal Club podcast. Uh, today we're going to be uh, discussing topics related to functional neurosurgery, and this is going to be for the April 2022 edition. Um, the article that we're going to discuss today is called Tetography-Based Surgical Targeting for Thalamic Deep Brain Stimulation. Um, there's more to the name of that article, but nevertheless, that's how we're going to start it. And I'll introduce our uh, uh, author for today, uh, Dr. Baltak. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and where you're coming from? Hello. Yeah, uh, my name is Gordon Baltak. I'm a neurosurgeon now at, um, at Columbia University in the Department of Neurosurgery. Uh, my specialty is, is functional neurosurgery, um, surgical treatment of movement disorders, uh, Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, and dystonia. Um, as well as focused ultrasound. Excellent. Uh, as a guest faculty, uh, we have Doris Wang. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is uh, Doris Wang. I am a functional neurosurgeon at University of California, San Francisco. Just like Dr. Baltak, my specialty is uh, treating patients with movement disorders, uh, Parkinson's disease and central tremor dystonia. Uh, with neuromodulation devices, as well as um, ablative surgery. What a pleasure to have you uh, with us today. As well, we have our uh, CNS uh, fellow, uh, that's going to be uh, Dr. Domino. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yep, so I'm, I'm Joe Domino. I'm a sixth-year neurosurgery resident at the University of Kansas, and um, it's a pleasure to have you all here uh, for the podcast today. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, uh, being here. So, uh, uh, Dr. Baltuk, go ahead and give us an introduction of the paper, a little review uh, just for the uh, listeners. So this was, um, this was a retrospective study uh, that was done in, um, in collaboration uh, with the, uh, the researchers in the Department of uh, Radiology um, when I was at Penn. And what we had looked at is we had done a series of uh, DBS cases for essential tremor. Um, which we had treated and retrospectively, uh, they went back and they took a look and did, um, and did probabilistic tractography on uh, this set of patients. And then they looked at the probabilistic tractography that they did under a research protocol, compared it to the sort of deterministic tra tractography that we had just done up front um, that had been done clinically, um, and then sort of wanted to compare the two and see which one actually was closer to the final leads that were placed, um, which had been done sort of in a sort of relatively routine fashion, which we've been doing sort of probably had done at Penn for probably the last 25 years. Hmm. And what inspired you to do this? Well, I think there was, what happened was, I think there was interest, um, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And then when we started doing, um, focused ultrasound when we started getting back to ablation about five years ago. We hadn't done, I started in ablation in the 1980s when I was in training in Montreal um, in residency. We, we were doing these ventriculography based, you know, thalamotomies. Um, when we got back to ablations with focused ultrasound, um, people started talking more and more about the, uh, the DRT. So then we started at that point, started asking our, um, neuroradiologists to do some post-processing uh, on these procedures. And they're using the DynaSuite, using post-processing DRT to try to take a look at where the DRT is 
and uh, take a look at where the descending tract is, where the medial lemniscus is as we were making lesions. And since once we were doing that for making lesions, we said, well, why not do um, it for DBS as well? Because we started to see a lot of patients who are coming in for essential tremor. And at the time, uh, it wasn't Medicare approved um, in Pennsylvania. So a lot of patients were coming in for focused ultrasound. We were talking to them about it. And I say, well, you got to go on a waiting list till it's, you know, till it's approved. And they will say, well, there's anything else. I say, well, there's DBS. Well, I want that, you know? So we started getting a lot more sort of in that time period, um, a lot, what you call a halo effect. We started to get a lot more of those kind of cases. So we said, well, why don't we do DRTs on these as well? You know, and then, um, and those were deterministic. And so we did those. Um, and I think some of that stuff got published in another publication in World Neurosurgery a year before. Um, and this was done by the now chief resident, Andrew Yang was the senior author. Um, and the radiology researcher was Dr. Verna, who specializes in, uh, in tractography um, in general. So then we extended it and we started to look at these, um, at these tractographies and say, well, what do they look like? Are they things that we should be using? Should we not be using them? Um, how are we going to incorporate these type of technologies in a, into a very senior surgeon's, neurosurgeon sort of existing protocol? Can they help um, and can they guide? And, you know, the, uh, these, um, these, this therapy is evolving and the way people are doing um, these procedures is evolving as well. So this is how this all sort of came about in terms of looking at this stuff um, and uh, probably um, leads to even more questions and answers, which is exciting, which is what you really actually, what you really want in this space, you know, is to, to get more questions um, in general. But it was really directed um, more so from um, getting back into lesional um, procedures um, and having the concern about sort of the um, pencil has no eraser in a lesional procedure and sort of trying to get away, you know, trying to get accuracy without, um, without morbidity. Um, that's where this sort of really began, per se. Sure. That's excellent. Uh, and thank you for that background. You know, I think we can gain a lot more appreciation. Uh, so I'll pass it over to uh, Doris, by all means, if you'd like to chime in and uh, ask any questions. Yeah, thank you so much again for this opportunity and for the excellent introduction. And um, one question I had from reading the paper was um, whether you found any correlation between, you know, the distance from the active contact that was used ultimately to treat the patient's tremor um, and its distance to the either the deterministic tractography or the probabilistic DRT and the clinical tremor reduction. No, we, we weren't, we didn't have enough um... I don't think we had enough really good clinical data to study that um, super appropriately. You, you get a sense uh, overall though, you can look at like some of the voltages and say, okay, like the voltages are lower. You're, you're probably closer if your voltages are a little bit lower. I mean, that's sort of not really super accurate, but sometimes you, you would say, okay, we need really, really low voltages to get the, uh, the tremor suppressed, and you would have a sense that you know lower voltages um, were somewhat were somewhat closer. Um, the caveat still with all of this is is we're taking things like deterministic tractography and sort of creating a monolith with them and saying you know they all are, are of equivalent sort of quality each one that gets done, 
and they sort of all, all in my mind when I look at them, um, can be very dependent on on the brain that they're doing, the person who's doing the tractography, how that tractography it's being done. Um, you know, whether they're using one commercial system versus the other commercial system. And we've all gone through sort of these iterations where they give us different systems to play on and they don't all look the same. The idea, you don't just push a button and this stuff, you know, comes out. It's a question of how much time you spend seeding this stuff, you know, and, and looking at this stuff. So, I mean, deterministic tractography is available to us. I mean, that's what we have. Probabilistic tractography is not readily available to clinical neurosurgeons. It's something that's sort of, it's not part of the FDA systems that we have. It's a, it's a research tool. Um, and then some people now have published to say, well, maybe it, it's, a, it's a better tool, but it's not an available tool. You know, it's something that takes a lot of resources and um, uh, to do. And it's um, and it's not available at a lot of at a lot of places. And um, has you know the, the publication of this paper um, changed your practice? I know in my own practice, I actually have um, you know kind of gone away from just a consensus coordinates and to using actually tractographer tractography deterministic tractography uh, to plan my then target. Yeah. So. I, you know, for, in my sense, like for, for DBS, right, for what we're using here, um, like the question, there's a question around like directionality. I haven't had gotten to use directional leads um, in the past, but now I do. They're available to me, par partially because they were off-label. So I was a little concerned using off-label directional leads for essential tremor. Now they are on-label, on you can use them. I think if you're putting in a DBS and you have a directional lead now, I think that gives you a lot more wiggle room in terms of being able to steer current. Um, so I think you can can do things and you, you got a little more wiggle room in what you can do. However, when you're making lesions like a focused ultrasound, um, now it's a little more concerned. And I think trichography is helpful, not only in the DRT, it's very helpful in knowing how far out lateral um, that descending tract is, because that's where you're, you're going to get the sarathuria, that's where you're going to potentially get, you know, the weakness. Um, and especially in people who've got like a big third ventricle and sort of atrophic brain, and you're trying to figure out how far out do I need to go? How far out can I go? Like, and then how big a lesion can I make? Is it going to, you know, the, and the capsule, you know, could be a heat sink for us. And it does act as a heat sink and focused ultrasound. Those white matter tracks pull heat um, then it becomes a lot more important um, for that type of stuff. You know, for, for DBS, I wonder, I haven't used directional leads yet, but I'm looking forward to using them. I wonder if you have a lot of directionality, if you would actually absolutely need this, because you can work around with your direction, with your directionality um, pretty well. And, and also, I think um, there used to be a huge stuff on battery life. You know, battery life used to be really, really important. I, you get the voltage really low um, and you get right on the money. You know, you have to, only have to use low voltage. You'll have long battery life, et cetera. But now with rechargeable technology becoming increasingly used, um, you know, you're recharging anyways. So if your battery, if you have to use a little higher versus a lo little lower voltage, um, 
you may be okay. Though, on the other hand, you know, as you guys move towards more under general anesthesia, this may be something that helps you even more as you do direct anatomical targeting. A lot of variables. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, you know, for that uh, discussion. So, Joe, uh, this is your opportunity. <laughs> Would you like to bring any further questions uh, for our guests? Yes. Yeah. Again, thank you uh, to Dr. Baltuck and, and Dr. Wong for joining us today. Uh, so, you know, just stepping back to the fiber tracking itself, I was just curious what some of the, or what the major difference between deterministic and probabilistic fiber tracking, and is it something where you see this, you know, is this apply to other, you know, movement disorder target areas of areas of neurosurgery? Um, I have a personal interest in uh, neuro-oncology, and obviously we do some fiber tracking um, in that uh, realm as well, so just uh, you know, thought where where you see this extending within movement disorder, but also within neurosurgery itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, certainly fiber tracking is really important when you're making lesions in terms of um, in terms of looking at um, staying out of those staying out of those structures um, and seeing those tracts well um, is important. Um, some of the some of the structures that we're starting to look at potentially investigation. Um, for ablation may not only be um, gray matter structures, there may be, they may be uh, white matter structures like the palatothalamic tract. You know, it sits between sort of Vic Desir and the capsule. It's an investigational topic, but it's been, it's been published in Switzerland. Um, looking at some of those things, you may want to be focusing on tracts and do tractography um, to look at those things more importantly. Um, my hope is is that as we get more three-dimensional type imaging and we can look and do targeting more three-dimensionally instead of in these sort of 2D planes, we could sort of do three-dimensional targeting of tracts and get more, more volume in terms of how we do this, especially as we start making these sort of lesions, which are in three, which are in three dimensions um, per yeah. se. And also this stuff also becomes really important in terms of um, complication avoidance especially as we start using, um, um, making more lesions. So, yeah, I think this stuff um, is becoming more, more important. Um, it's, um, it's also a challenge as you see more uh, types of tractography coming online is to sort of do it, try to do it well. And the question is how to do it well, how to get this post-processing so it's accurate. I mean, it's not always uh, completely accurate when you look at it. Um, and that's why I tend to sort of um, use it as a complement to existing, you know, stereotactic targeting as opposed to like just can be completely reliant on it. If the stuff doesn't gel, um, sometimes I will sort of be a little skeptical about it and go back to um, go back to the sort of sort of classical way. I, I think it's sort of a complement. Yeah, great point. Uh, you know, along those lines, as you just just wondering if you if you saw you know a practice shift maybe towards doing more um, you know like BIM uh, you know essential tremor stuff in um, with general anesthesia as a sleep patient and if you have a sense of the targeting of the DRT with the fiber tracking is potentially non inferior to intraoperative neurophysiology and stimulation testing I know that you know perhaps in your study you didn't have necessarily wasn't powered to do that itself or tested that but just if you had a sense of that. No, I think it's I think it's a really important question. As you see, you know, there are lots of you know very prestigious groups 
um, in this country who are, you know, very um, well-known neurosurgeons who, who have done, you know, my, doing this classically with microrecordings who have now moved to do this under um, general anesthesia uh, with a variety of systems, intraoperative MRI being one, intraoperative CT, um, and, and have effective results. So the, uh, you're seeing more and more um, people being done under GA. It certainly has um, real advantages to it. I think this is, there's a lot of anxiety um, in society now. And you, you know, we talked briefly about you know, how COVID allowed us to have these type of sessions because they pushed that forward. But certainly COVID's also made our patient population a lot more anxious. And a lot of people just do not want to have awake surgery. They're very... Um, bothered by it. So if you can give them an effective, a sleep operation where you can get the, the same type of effectiveness um, un, under GA, and especially in a situation where you have tremor and so you're not, allowed, you're not able to test it, uh, this could be, um, I think, has the potential to be um, the, a real adjunct for this as well. Um, I mean, here again, with direct, I think directional DBS is gonna give you also a big advantage in terms of doing things under um, uh, under GA, as did intraoperative MRI, because you could see exactly where you are um, in terms of your your lead location. I think those two type of things are going to make um, these procedures under general anesthesia much more popular over time. Um, and then it, it begs the question: what the future of MER is going to be? Um, and I don't know what the answer uh, to that. To that is um, some people are not doing a lot of MER anymore. They're just doing awake without MER. And some people are not doing MER or um, or, uh, <clears throat> or awake. And some people are doing a sleep with MER. So you've got all the combinations, you know, of all the, all the above here. Again, when you're putting a lead in, a DBS lead, um, it's neuromodulatory. So you have room to move and you have room to steer, especially with directionality. The question then becomes when you're making lesions, whether you're going to, whether you're doing a lesion with um, focused ultrasound, where you have sort of some control over the uh, the clinical effect with a with a uh, a lower temperature reversible lesion that you could change, or if you're using doing gamma knife thalamotomies where you're giving a set amount of of radiation um, to the brain and you don't have the clinical effect until a few weeks uh, later. I think these things could potentially become critical adjuncts um, to to um, to what you're doing at this at this juncture, and they are. You know, they, you really start looking at these a lot more carefully. Yeah. Yeah, that's really insightful. And um, you know, as we're beginning to launch our only focus ultrasound program here at UCSF, I've visited a few sites that use uh, tractography. You know. Um, exclusively to and extensively to determine, you know, the lesion location. And I've heard some anecdotes that, um, you know, fiber tracking based lesioning may increase tremor um, reduction um, and uh, leading to a lot more durable effects and also may reduce some of the side effects such as, such as you know, gait and balance issues. Have you found that in your practice? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yet, I mean, I think it. I think it can help you knowing out where you are out laterally. Um, mm -hmm. the, the you know the big issue we're seeing um, with focused ultrasound is issues of gait, right? That's the big, 
that's the big rub that it's getting these days. And the gate problems are usually, um, they are usually um, temporary, but there are a series of permanent gate problems that you're getting um, in patients. And the question is, why are you getting, why are you getting those gate problems? I mean, is the lesion too big? I mean, some of this stuff, you know, might be like intuitive or, or, you know, like maybe too big a lesion or also one of the big things is, is the lesion too low? Like, are you, are you putting the lesion too low? So many have started, you know, their bottom lesion is at sort of one or two above ACPC. Um, and people say, well, isn't your active area when you do a DBS, don't you get your active contact down at the bottom? Um, isn't that where you're going to get your active contact? And that's, you know, we're seeing here um, that with a lesion, you may want to go a little bit higher in this sort of three-dimensional uh, of VIM uh, to avoid sort of these type of, of complications instead. So when I'm looking at lesions versus DBS, if the DBS is low, well, a lot of people like ZI anyways for, you know, essential tremor and getting below the thalamus is not a bad thing. And they'll use their contact below and that'll, that'll work sometimes really, really well. I mean, in the paper, I think the active contacts wind up being a little bit higher uh, in, in the, um, that they used when they did a calculation versus ACPC. And I think that when you're making lesions, my tendency, I think you're a little safer as you go a little bit higher uh, over ACPC. I think when you get low, the lesion um, can potentially spread. And even though that may be a little different than what you do with DBS, um, I'd be a little more careful. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. Uh, on, on a practical note, you know, a little bit different than this, but still related. Um, do you find any issues with Focus Ultrasound and insurance companies? You know, like as far as trying to get anything, you know, through for the patients, I guess. I suffer yeah, something like that. It used to be, I think it used to be really, really challenging, um, like a couple of years ago. Um, more recently, it's been um, it's been less of um, it's been less of a problem. Though I hear that there are still some like major insurers that are not um, that are not covering this. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I could be um, I could be I could be I could be wrong, you know. But um, like I think, um, for instance, I think Columbia's major insurer is United. When you work at Columbia, I think United covers the medical staff. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I don't think United covers this procedure, you know, so it's, yeah. we're, it's interesting to work at an institution where your medical insurer doesn't cover the procedure that you do, <laughs> but like Medicare does. So I think, yeah, there are some commercial insurers that are still not covering. So there still is, um, is work to do. And I think for some of the other um, FDA, like pallidotomy um, is now FDA approved, um, for, um, for, for um, symptoms of PD, um, but uh, most insurers are not gonna cover it uh, for those type of patients. Well, yeah. thank you so much, you know, uh, Dr. Baltuck. I appreciate, you know, your insights and the paper uh, that you were able to um, uh, present here and congratulations on the publication. And of course, you know, I appreciate uh, Dr. Wong and also Dr. Domino for joining us and uh, for everybody else uh, out there that's listening, you know, the, you can claim uh, CME credit uh, online. Uh, it's about 1.5 AMA, you know, uh, category one credit uh, through the CNS Journal Club podcast website. 
Uh, so thanks again for everybody and uh, see you next month.